Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you're here with us. And uh, like Paul mentioned, we'll have uh, Dr. Cha with us next week. A couple weeks ago, we had Stan Archie, uh, senior pastor at Christian Fellowship uh, Baptist Church. Our sister church was here with us over the summer. So we've had a couple of guests, which means that along the way, we've missed a couple or we've missed one and we'll miss another uh, sermon in our Genesis series. But one of the beauties of being a multi-site congregation is that other campuses are doing those messages. And so um, we will drop those messages from another campus into our podcast stream. So if you're interested in what, what did we miss that week that Stan was here, or what do we miss next week that when Peter was here, um, that you can actually, they're not there yet, but we will drop those into the, the podcast. So if you uh, follow us on the podcast and you want to hear Genesis 19 or whatever the next text might be that we miss out on, you can still do that. So um, you can follow along in that way. Uh, as we go continue this morning in the story of Genesis to Genesis chapter 22, I'd love to begin by praying and asking uh, for the Holy Spirit who inspired these words to be at work afresh and anew in this moment, applying this to our lives. So Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us the gift of your word. And that by the power of your spirit, you spoke and inspired these words to begin with. We ask now, Spirit, that you would do your work afresh here in this place. Teach us, correct us, help us to grow in the ways that only you can meet us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I can still picture really clearly the little stretch of road on Trinity Evangelical Divinity School where I went to, went to seminary, that little stretch of road on the campus I was driving along that little stretch of road. It had just, the sun had just kind of set. It wasn't totally dark yet. And, and I'm not sure what triggered the thought as I was driving that little patch of road. But somehow in that moment, the reality that I was truly now on my own financially for the first time in my life kind of came crushing in to that little old beat-up 1993 uh, Hyundai Elantra that I was driving. And uh, up until that point, all through college, you know, my folks had been helping out with some tuition and books. I was driving one of their cars. I was under the umbrella of their insurance. Um, but when I graduated from college, sort of all of that transitioned and, and it was all on me in, in good and right ways. I was excited for it. They were excited for it. It was the right thing. But what I realized, what kind of hit me in that moment is up until that point in my life, God's provision for me had really been mediated through my parents, right? I mean, yeah, I trusted God to provide for the things that I needed, but really I looked to mom and dad for those. But not anymore. Now I was trusting God sort of directly to provide for me. And, and it felt scary. It also felt a little exhilarating, but mostly what I remember thinking in that moment is it made me realize just how much my faith had really been in my parents to provide for me rather than in God providing for me. How much I'd been resting in their provision and not really in God's provision. And when it came time in that moment to really trust him directly, I wasn't as sure that I could, and it wasn't nearly as easy as I thought it would be. Now this morning, whether you consider yourself a, a Christian or not, uh, we are all looking to something or to someone to provide for us. Our career, our family, our parents, achievements, success, comfort. We're all looking to something to provide for us. 
And the thing is that it often isn't until we come to a moment where those things are questioned or shaken or just even disappear for a time that we realize just how much we were really trusting in them. Well, this morning as we come to Genesis chapter 22, we continue the story of Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis. And in this chapter, we're confronted with this question of how do I know I have true faith? How do we know if we have true faith, especially in the moments when life doesn't seem to make sense? And this morning, we're going to look at what I think is one of the most pivotal, but also puzzling and confusing, challenging, but also deeply encouraging passages, not just in the book of Genesis, which we've been looking at, but really in the entire story of the Bible. And first, this morning, we're just, we're just going to enter into the story. And I want to invite you as we do this to really use your imagination, really try to place yourself in the story. What would it have been like to be one of these characters? What must they have been feeling and thinking? The story's constructed in a way that we're invited in to think about that. And secondly, after we've done that, if we've entered into the story, lived in the midst of the story, then we're going to look at sort of three takeaways about the nature of true faith. When we've been journeying with Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis now for a while, uh, really for the last five weeks together as a church, we've been in in Genesis since January, but we've been following along with Abraham and Sarah now for about five weeks. And their story is really the beginning of a hinge point in the book of Genesis. The first 11 chapters of Genesis tell the story of how this good God creates a world out of nothing and it's good and it's beautiful. And then his image bearers, human beings, they rebel against him and they're put out of the garden and sin and death enter into the world and all this begins to unfold well you get to Genesis chapter 12 and all of a sudden you zoom into this one family this one family who God is going to use to provide a rescue for the whole world who God promises that Abraham through your family the whole earth will be blessed whole earth is going to be blessed. My rescue plan is going to come through you. But there's only one problem, and it's the problem that has been animating the story for the last four weeks as we've looked at this, and that is that Abraham doesn't have a family. (laughs) There's this promise, I'm going to bless the whole world through your family, but Abraham's like, I don't have a family. Abraham and Sarah, they have never been able to have children. It's just the two of them. Their line is going to end with them, and yet God continues to promise through you, the whole earth will be blessed through your family. For 24 years, God kept promising a child. And they were already old when God made that promise. And then they waited another 24 years. They kept waiting. And finally, against all odds, because as we looked last week, Paul in the New Testament even says, they are as good as dead. Well past childbearing age. Both nearly 100 years old. Yahweh, the creator God of the universe. The God of the Bible. He intervenes and he keeps his promise miraculously. And Sarah gives birth to a son, Isaac, which means laughter. She gives birth to little laughter. That's where we ended last week. The promised child is finally here. The one that we've been waiting for all this time has finally arrived. 
So now we come to this week, and it's like, okay, what's next? The plan can finally move forward. What's going to happen next in the story? So take a look at Genesis chapter 22. It's on page 16 in your pew Bible. If you want to follow along there, Genesis chapter 22, page 16 there. We're boys waiting. What's going to happen? Genesis 22, 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. It's like, whoa, what? I mean, maybe you've read this story before. Maybe you're familiar with Genesis before, and you're like, oh yeah, I remember this is coming. But imagine you are reading this for the very first time. And Isaac is born at last. I mean, all these chapters, it's all been leading up to Isaac being born. Now, what's going to happen in God's plan? It can finally move forward. And then this? After all those years of waiting, all those hopes delayed, God finally provides, and then he asks this. Do you feel the force, even of how the, how the author, the narrator, has constructed this text? It builds, it slowly builds, it stacks. Take your son, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go, offer him as a burnt offering. Now, the narrator immediately tells us as readers that this is a test. God's testing Abraham. But Abraham, he doesn't know that. He doesn't get that insight from the beginning. He doesn't know how this is going to end. And it's important for us to understand here that God's not just asking Abraham to murder Isaac, but to offer him back as a sacrifice. Now, that may seem a little bit to us like a a distinction without a difference. But in the cultural context of the story and in the broader story of, of Scripture, there's a pattern, an understanding that the, the, the first fruits of the harvest, the, the first and best of your animals, your livestock, even the firstborn in your family, that they belong to God. They're to be offered back to Him. We see this in Exodus chapter 13, when God delivers His people out of slavery in Egypt, they're set up and He instructs them to dedicate, to consecrate, to set apart the firstborn to him. But I'm sure if we're honest here in this moment, even with that little bit of biblical and historical context, it still seems a far way off from God coming out as the good guy in the story at this point. So where do we go from here? We'll look at Abraham and we see his response of faith in the face of this impossible request. God calls and Abraham answers, here am I. Even before he knows what God is going to do or ask, God simply calls Abraham. He says, here am I, which is more than just a sort of God's doing roll call in the classroom and Abraham is saying, present. That phrase, here am I, captures this posture of attentive listening, of of a readiness to respond immediately He's poised, ready to act. And that's just what Abraham does. The author doesn't give us any sort of narrative in between God giving him the command 
and Abraham acting. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Again, notice the deliberateness of how the author tells the story. It's such a compact narrative, but each step is deliberate. He rose, he saddled, he took, he cut, he went. And with each step, with each verb, with each instruction, action, we're invited to ponder, to wonder, what must these characters have been thinking? What was he feeling? Had Abraham told Sarah what they were doing? The author doesn't tell us exactly, but we get a hint in verse 5 of at least of an inkling of Abraham's faith, a hint about his faith. Because notice in verse 5, he tells the young men who are traveling with him that he and Isaac will return. We are going to go over there to worship, and then we will turn to you again. Abraham has no idea what is going to happen once they get to the top of the mountain, but he trusts that God will provide. He has faith in God and who God is. And we have insight beyond even just that hint in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 22, when we step back and look at the broader context of the narrative of the whole of the scriptures, we get an even greater insight into this moment. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, reflecting back on this moment in the life of Abraham, tells us this. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and when he and when he and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offering be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, Abraham is not acting out of blind faith or spiritual naivete or even just kind of this optimism of everything's just going to work out in the end. By faith, he is risking everything he has in the present and entrusting everything that will come into the future to the one who has been faithful to him in the past. Remember, the Bible is a large collection of individual stories and characters and people that are all forming together one big story, one big narrative. It tells the truth about the whole world and all these pieces fit together. And I think the story of Abraham and Isaac is perhaps one of the greatest narratives to help us understand this truth of how every story in the scriptures are linked together pointing to one big story and one big point. And let me, let me illustrate it this way. I'm going to show you kind of two different sets of two photos that one, the first one is the zoomed in picture of a common item and then just try to guess what that is. And then you can see, we'll look at the second image, which is it kind of zoomed out. So here's the first one. Any ideas what that could be? Oh, <laughs> okay, it's got it. Yeah, let's zoom it out. It's the tiny little teeth on the tape dispenser, right? So you, you see this. So here's the next one. Now pull it back out. It's the little tiny end of the stem of an apple. 
right? So when you zoom in, and you've probably seen lots of these pictures in your life, where you zoom in, you just see a little, my kids get these nature magazines all the time, where it's like, you just take a little part of a wing or a little piece of fur, and you got to guess, what is this thing? And it's hard when you're zoomed in, just looking at this one thing, what is this? But then you zoom back out, and you see the whole picture and how it fits and what it is. In the same way, the story of Abraham and Isaac is a lot like a zoomed-in photo, right? If all you had of your Bible was Genesis chapter 22, and you just read Genesis chapter 22, like you just looked at that little piece of a tape dispenser, that little apple stem, you'd be like, what in the world is going on here? What is this? Not only would it be confusing, but you'd probably rightly be appalled at well, how, who is this God and what is he asking Abraham to do? Thankfully, we don't just have Genesis chapter 22 in our Bibles. When we zoom out from the story, we see the light of the big picture. We make sense of what we're viewing. And this is made even clearer as the story unfolds, even here in Genesis chapter 2. And again, the storytelling here is masterful. The patterns, the verbal links and echoing. Notice now as we continue in verses 6 through 8 how they echo the language of verses 1 and 2. And also listen to how the author so intentionally in these verses highlights the father-son language. Verse 6, But Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his, Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son, he said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went on, both of them together. And the author brings us right into this heart-wrenching moment. The father and son language. And we continue to see Abraham's faith that God will provide. God will provide. Scholar Edmund Clowney draws this out. He says, Abraham was not telling a lie when he answered Isaac's questions, which, which plunged like a knife into his heart. There was ambiguity in his answer, but ambiguity that revealed faith. Ambiguity that revealed faith. God will provide. And the two of them go on together, and the tension continues to build. This is a short narrative, but wow, how the author just builds the tension in the story. What is going to happen? How is God going to provide? Is Abraham going to go through with this? Is God going to let Abraham go through with this? Through the rising tension of the story, the author is almost like this kind of gifted filmmaker who's been doing a series of montage sort of scenes leading up to this point. You see this sort of scene of him cutting the wood, of him placing the wood, saddling the donkey, putting the wood on Isaac's back, Isaac being bound, he's placed on the altar. It's kind of this quick montage of scenes. The tension is building, but then all of a sudden in verse 10, it goes into slow motion. Heart-pounding Verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. So as the camera zooms in and all we see is the knife, all we see is Abraham's hand reaching for it. He grasps it, he raises it, and in a moment that seems to last an hour, the knife hovers above Isaac, the music stops. Again, all you hear is the breathing and the heartbeat, and then suddenly 
when we can't possibly endure another moment, a voice speaks, and everything comes back to normal speed again. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And this is where the entire narrative has been building, not just here in Genesis chapter 22, but really this is the, even where the narrative has been building in the entire Bible up until this point to Genesis all the way through, that this truth, that true faith rests in the God who provides. True faith rests in the God who provides, even when it doesn't make sense, even when we're confused, even when we can't see a way. Will we lean on our own understanding? Will we trust in ourselves? Will we try to figure it out on our own? Will we scramble or will we trust and rest in the God who provides? So three takeaways then for us to consider here. First is this. True faith will be tested. True faith will be tested. Now, before we go any further here, it's really important to point out that this moment in Abraham's life is a unique, particular place in the salvation history of God's plan. The big story that God is writing. We can't just universalize this moment to every one of our lives, and God is certainly not going to test you in this exact way as he does with Abraham. But the Bible is clear throughout. If you step back and you just read through the Scriptures, that there are regular seasons in the life of people in Scripture and in the history of the Church where they enter into seasons of testing. That God tests His people. Now, testing is really important to also remember that testing is different than temptation. The Bible is really clear that God never tempts us to do wrong. But He does provide tests Tests that provide the opportunity to reveal who we are, to show the character of faith, to reveal who we're trusting, to refine us. Because you think about a teacher in a classroom, right? When a teacher in a classroom gives a test, the, the point of the test isn't to try to make the student do something wrong. No, it's to reveal what the student has learned, what they know, and even provide places to understand where there is growth still needed. A life of true faith is a life that will encounter seasons of testing. So expect those. I feel like I'm in the midst of one of those right now in my own life, in so many different ways. I mean, who do I really trust to provide? Do I believe, God, you will provide? There are seasons that God gives us of testing. Expect them. Second, True faith responds in action. 
The second thing we see here, true faith is not passive. True faith believes God and then it acts in accordance with that belief. It's not idle. True faith is not a couch potato faith that, that just sits back and watches Netflix and hopes that somehow God will just take care of it all. True faith responds in action. It says, here am I. Here am I, ready to do what you ask, God. True faith is revealed less by the propositions that we assent to and more by the life that we actually live. It shows what we actually believe, what we actually trust. And yes, we have to have right truths about God. We have to. Maybe the only, that's the only way that Abraham can have the kind of faith that he does here is that, that he knows true things about who God is. He believes right things about who God is. But the Bible is really clear, the book of James and the New Testament in particular, that even demons, even God's enemies, the forces aligned against all that God is attempting to do in the world, that all that he's going to bring to fruition, every force that stands in opposition to that, even the demons believe true things about God. But it's the response of faith, of obedience, of receiving that make the difference. Think about it like this. You can believe, you can believe that water is necessary for life. But if you don't actually receive it, if you don't actually drink water every day, you will die. No matter how strongly you believe sort of as a proposition that water is necessary for life, that only becomes effective for you if you receive it, if you drink it, if you take it in, if you respond. Do you, do you see what I mean? That true faith is responsive. But third, and most important of all, true faith rests in the God who provides. True faith rests in the God who provides. We cannot miss this because if we only had those first two points, and it would be really easy to preach a sermon from Genesis 22 here and just have those first two points, that if you're a Christian, if you're living a life of faith, there's going to be seasons of testing, and faith responds in, in action and obedience. You could, you could do that, and you could preach that sermon, but you would miss the point. If you stop short of this last piece, the true faith rests in the God who provides because you would entirely miss the, not only the point of this passage, but the point of this book. Because yes, Abraham's faith is deeply on display in this account. Yes, we see him being tested. Yes, we see him responding in faith, but that's not where the account ends. It ends with verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place. Not Abraham had great faith, but the Lord will provide. But the Lord will provide. This is not ultimately a story about how Abraham and how great he is. It is a story about how, who God is and how great he is. It's not a story of just go be like Abraham. Though the Bible is clear that Abraham and Sarah, they are the picture of what it means to respond to God in faith. Yes, we should learn from their example. But this is not a be like Abraham story. This is a trust in the God who provides story. Because you see Abraham and Isaac, the story here, it's a zoomed-in story of another father and son. Just as God promised the birth of a son to a hopeless and waiting couple, God promised the birth of His son, His only son whom He loved, to hopeless and waiting people. 
Just as Abraham's son would experience great testing in the wilderness, God's son, his only son whom he loved, would experience testing in the wilderness. Just as Abraham offered up his son, trusting in the power of God to raise him to life if it came to that, so God offered up his son, his only son whom he loved, to die for us and defeat death by raising him to life. And I absolutely love the picture of this in the Jesus Storybook Bible, how Sally Lloyd-Jones captures this. She writes, many years later, another son would climb another hill, carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the Lamb of God. Which all of this means that the cross on the Mount of Calvary where the Son of God was sacrificed us for us can be seen from the Mount Moriah where Abraham and Isaac stood. For God did on the Mount of Calvary what Abraham did not have to do on Mount Moriah. And Isaac's question in this account, where is the Lamb? Echoes throughout every page of Scripture until we finally get to Jesus. Where is the Lamb? Where is the Lamb? And then we meet John the Baptist in John chapter 1 in the New Testament, and he is preparing the way for Jesus. And when Jesus walks onto the scene, how does John introduce him? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the lamb who Isaac was looking for. Jesus is the lamb who John prepared the world for. Jesus is the lamb who was sacrificed for you and me. And Jesus is the lamb who will reign forever because when you get to the end of the story of the Bible, who is the conquering king but the lamb who was slain? Revelation always talks about Jesus as the lamb who was slain. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? He is the risen and reigning lamb. Jesus, our king. We can rest in God's provision, friends, because he has already provided for us everything that we ultimately need. Paul writes this in in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, one of the most encouraging bedrock passages of our assurance of the hope that we have in Jesus. And just listen to the language because you can't help but think that Paul had to have Genesis 22 in the back of his mind as he's writing these verses. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What are we to say then about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Verse 32, he did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Friends, this morning, rest in hope. Rest in the assurance that God has not spared even his own son, his only son, the one who loves. Jesus willingly gave his life for you. No one can be against you. No one can stop you. No one can stand in your way of you being rescued by him. And if that's true, Paul says, then how is he not going to then provide us everything? If he is not, God has not stopped short of giving you his son, his only son whom you love, how is he not going to also give you everything else that you need? If not now, for all of eternity. The only question for us this morning is this. Are we resting in him? Are we resting in him? 
Are you resting in him this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your provision. And I just confess in this moment that there are so many times when I don't trust you to provide. When I waver in that, I need to be reminded again and again that you will provide. You will provide. Help us as your people, as sheep who so easily forget, maybe even as those who have never trusted in your promise before, to cling on and never let go of the hope that you will provide. We ask this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit.